talked a big game, but who left you with the impression that they were talking about things that they really knew nothing about. Have you ever met a person whose words on a subject seem to outstrip and outdistance their experience and their knowledge of the very subject they had undertaken to discuss? If so, do you think that looks like the church when talking about the Spirit of God? Is that us in relation to God's Spirit? Do we talk a big game with little experience to show for it? Are we moved along by the Holy Spirit at Calvary? John Stott said this of the Christian life, it's essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say, a life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Now, now is that us? Animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Are we local experts on the enrichment and the animation of life brought by the Spirit of God? Ought we be? Are we familiar through experience with the glories that Paul is speaking of in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11? Let's go there this morning. I want to read it to you. We are going through the book of Romans. We are at Romans chapter 8 today. We take a paragraph and look at it. And God is encouraging our hearts with it. When we get to chapter 13, you'll read that wonderful line, the encouragement of the scriptures. And that's what we want to experience this morning, is it not? Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of the life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit for to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life And peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Hear the word of the Lord. In chapter 7, Paul has talked about the law of God. 
31 times he uses the term law. He uses the Holy Spirit, a reference to the Holy Spirit, one time in chapter 7. You turn from Romans 7 to Romans chapter 8. Here, 19 times he alludes to the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. He is stressing in chapter 8 the radical difference that living in the Spirit of God actually makes. Now, this morning, we'll go two different directions. First, we'll look at the core ideas of Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. What are his theses? What is he getting at? What does he present? We need to understand that first before we figure out how we are then to live, which is the second part of the message. How should we then live? Three questions for our hearts to answer this morning. So first, the core ideas. Jesus liberates us from our sinful selves. That's the core idea. Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Hear the word of the Lord. The central controlling verb which shapes the ideas in these 11 verses is this notion that Christ has set us free. He has liberated us. Now in chapter 7, he talks about the plaguing sense of indwelling sin. We inherit Adam's flesh, susceptible as it is to sin. We have a gravitational pull away from righteousness and unto unrighteousness. Uh, We don't have to go to school to learn how to break God's law. We do that by nature, living still in nature apart from grace. But then the grace of God comes to us in Jesus Christ. And God opens our heart and we believe in Christ. And in believing in him and receiving the free gift of eternal life, we get the presence of Christ with us. The Spirit of God comes to dwell in us. And in his dwelling, we are liberated from the plaguing effects of sin. Now let's think of it in three different directions. Direction number one, Christianity is the grand story of what God did. Christianity is the grand story of what God did, of what he accomplished. Look at verse three. The first four words of Romans chapter eight and verse three are all you will ever need to understand about Christianity. Eric, give me, give me it in its most distilled form. Give it to me in four words. Here it is. For God has done. That's it. Christianity is the story of what God has done, what God accomplished in his son, Jesus Christ. Those are very important words. We don't understand the good news about Jesus until we understand who Jesus is and what God did in him. Maybe you've asked a person or been asked yourself the question, if you were to die tonight in your next conscious moment, 
you are awakened to stand before God and he looks at you and says, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? It's interesting to listen to a person answer that question because the answer to that question concedes the locus of that person's trust. It will reveal exactly what they're trusting in. Remember, uh, the four R's are very important to us here at Calvary, that we invite people to come to rely upon Jesus Christ as our hope for eternal salvation, then to renew our minds, to learn to relate in a God Christ-honoring way, and to reflect Jesus Christ before others. Those are our four R's. And it begins with a reliance upon Jesus Christ, receiving him into our life, trusting in him, so that what we bring to God is only our sin. And what he gives to us is his abundant grace, which is greater than our sin, and offers in our repentance and faith to give us the gift of righteousness that makes us acceptable to him. But whenever a person starts out, well, I try to do unto others as I would want them to do unto me. They're telling me something about what they're relying upon. Or if they say to me, well, I go to church. By the way, I'm really glad you are all here this morning. Unless you are here to trust in being here as the means that God would accept you. Because all that is is self-righteousness. You're trying to save yourself. Now, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm pro gathering together and approaching the Lord and celebrating what he has done, which is what worship is, because Christianity fundamentally is not about what we do. It's not about our response to what he's done. It's about what he has done. Christianity is a grand story of what God did. God acted. That's the only explanation for why we are in God's family. Christianity is about what God did, for God has done. Now, the second thought here is that in the death of Christ, God acted to condemn our condemnation. Now, actually, we should write in the margin of our Bibles next to Romans 8, 1, spoiler alert, exclamation mark, because he has told us the sweet implications of the coming of Jesus right at the beginning before he ever explains how we ever got there. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But if you quit reading there, you'll miss what God has done to bring Romans 8.1 about. Because here is what he has done. God acted to condemn our condemnation. Look at the first four verses. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by, here it is, what is, Eric, what did God did? If he did it, what did he did? What did he do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. You see, the incarnation, Bethlehem, (coughs) was an incredible plan. Sorry, get a little water. God became man in Jesus Christ. He took up human flesh. Now we know 
He made him who knew no sin. Jesus was without sin, but took up our humanity, susceptible as it is to sin. In the likeness of sinful flesh, the incarnation is really important. God enfleshed himself in our humanity. And then he offered himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us in order that the righteousness of God might be fulfilled in us. This made Jesus the perfect sacrifice. Our humanity, God without sin. So he could offer himself in our humanity. This is what it's meant by the phrase condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned our condemnation. That's why you can read Romans 8.1 and say amen and hallelujah. Because that's what he did. Eric, what did God do? God condemned sin in the flesh by sending Jesus in the flesh to offer himself in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now that little English phrase for sin, it looks pretty benign in the English text. It's actually a phrase, as Paul wrote it in the original, that's the exact phrase used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, a a book called the Septuagint, uh, for sin offering in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So he was, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for a sin offering. Here we are, five days out from Good Friday. Oh, and what a good day that was. Because in that day, the Lamb of God offered himself. In fact, that's how John the Baptist introduces him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's perfect lamb in the likeness of sinful flesh and a sin offering offered for us and takes away our sin. What? A savior. That's what happened on Good Friday. That's why you can read Romans 8.1 and say, wow, that's fantastic. There's therefore now no condemnation. Remember, there's a fence around it. We talked about this last week. For those who are in Christ Jesus. In the incarnation, Jesus takes up our flesh. He obeys the law perfectly. He is offered as a spotless lamb. And he condemns our condemnation. Condemns sin in the flesh. Now the third part of the thesis is this. The spirit of the risen Christ empowers our flesh for godliness. Look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 9, the word dwells is used once. Verse 11, the word dwells is used twice. It's actually a word for a house that's made into a verb. A house term would be a noun. But the action of dwelling in a house is the verb that's used here. So it's like, a house dwelling, it's amazing to think that God has made his house dwelling in us as we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's why we can live with full confidence that he will never leave us or forsake us. Remember, Jesus said, it's going to be better when I leave. I will send him and he will abide with you. Remember how long? Forever. So he comes and makes us home 
with us. By the way, does he feel at home where he is in us if we are in Christ Jesus? You know, it is possible to grieve the Spirit. It is possible to quench the Spirit's influence in our life. How about your life? How about mine this morning? Does he feel at home with us? A telltale sign, according to verse 9, of an authentic believer in Jesus Christ is the presence of the Spirit of God at work in our life. Notice he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So that a part of belonging to Christ is having the resident presence of the Spirit of God in us. We do not see him, but he is present with us. Our body becomes a temple for the Holy Spirit. It's where God, where does God dwell? He dwells among his people and he is at work in our lives. What a glory there is to knowing Jesus as our Savior. Now in some Pentecostal settings and charismatic settings, they'll say, hey, listen, what you need is you need to get the Spirit now. Get up here and get the Spirit. Romans 8, 9 is a verse that's a very important verse to think of in that setting. Because if anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. One of the marks of belonging to Jesus is the Spirit of Christ's presence in our life. Now, we would do well to yearn more for the Spirit of God's influence like that part of God's family does. But we don't need any more of the Spirit. We just need the Spirit to have more of us. Isn't that it? You remember the story of a group of preachers, one apparently with a pretty starchy shirt on his heart. They were talking about whether or not they ought to invite D.L. Moody to their city 150 years ago for a gospel meeting. Should they or not? In the middle of the debate, indignantly, one brother said, I'll tell you what. What's certain to me is D.L. Moody doesn't have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. To which one very wise brother retorted, yeah, but the reason we want to invite him is because the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. So the question before us this morning is, does the Spirit of God, and you might say, well, that was a cute turn of phrase, and, and it is funny, you know, and it'd be been fun to have sat in the room and sat next to that guy, you know, hey, what do you got for that? But it wasn't to be funny. It's an open question this morning about whether or not the Spirit of God has a monopoly over our lives. And when he does, oh, that's when things happen. And hearts are moved and hearts are changed. I know you join me, and, and I, I, I believe nobody wants it to go well like I do, but I want Calvary to go. You know when Calvary will go well? When the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on what's going on here, if he has a monopoly on our hearts. If we get that right, then it'll, it'll, it'll happen the exact way God wants it to happen. And his son will be glorified. 
You see, our flesh is impotent to obey the law. That's what he's describing. We've got that from Romans 7. We get it here. Uh, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Human weakness robs the flesh of all potency. The spirit of God brings capacity that we didn't have before he comes. The Spirit of God changes the dynamic of that conflict described in Romans chapter 7. You mean, Eric, we get rid of the presence of indwelling sin? No. But remember in Romans 7, 23, he said, I discovered there was another another influence in my members in the presence of indwelling sin. When the Spirit of God comes, we discover another law active in our members it's the law of christ and the power of the resurrection which is at work to help us render ourselves dead to sin but alive into christ and his righteousness which if you'll remember is what he's called for in romans chapter six we've been freed remember the central idea verse two for the law of the spirit of life What happened has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death. So this new law of the Spirit of Christ is at work in us. Christ's power is greater than that of the law. And again, Stott's quote, the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say, a life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Okay, Eric. If those are the core ideas, what is God asking us to do? What is God asking our hearts this morning? God's pursuing our hearts in at least three different ways with these three questions. Question number one, which fork in the road have you taken? Look at verse two. Look, I just read verse five. Verse eight. Remember, again, uh, Romans 7.23 Paul's discovery, when he was exposed to the law, I discovered, I discovered, I see in my members the force and power of the flesh, which was inflamed by the law. When the law said, do not covet, well, good night. That's when I realized all I did was covet, and I had a covetous heart. That's what Paul writes. The force... In the power of the flesh is its principle working within us. It's like an internal operating system for a person in nature, apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. What we experience is an operating system driven by the flesh, our innate desires. Our, I think the word carnal is used here, our carnal desires, our fleshly desires. That's the internal operating system. But then when the Spirit of God comes, there's another internal operating system that's turned on. It's the law of Christ. And he begins to work in our life and leads us. It's like there's one kind of an x-ray and a scan. Uh, It's called a a, a PET scan. There's several different kinds. If if there's something wrong with your thyroid, well, they'll do a, a nuclear test. And other than having to hang around folks for a little while, or not hang around folks for a little while, uh, you know, you get right through it. But then it will show up whether or not you have 
cancerous tissue in your endocrine system uh, through your thyroid. And it'll light up in the skin. It's like, now, now the, the, the nuclear test, the, there's nothing wrong with the nuclear stuff that they give you, maybe intravenously, and I'm, I'm really talking like several pay grades above what my even understanding. I should have called some real smart person before I started into this, but I didn't. But um, what happens is there's nothing wrong with the stuff that comes in your body. So there's nothing wrong with the law, but the law is to our awareness what that nuclear product is to its introduction into our bloodstream because it'll go and it identifies the place in your body. It'll light up in the scan what's going on in your body. In the same way, we're exposed to the law. And what the law does, the law is good, it's not bad, but the law then makes us, we look up on the screen and say, oh, yeah, I see that in my heart. Oh, I see that in my heart. I see that. And it all stemmed from the introduction of the law. Well, that is frustrating, but then as Jesus Christ comes to live in us, there's another law we discover in our members. Not some law that's discouraging, but the glorious law of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ abiding in us through his spirit and giving us by his grace and through his mercy an ability to live a life that pleases him. Did you note that a person driven by this internal operating system of the flesh is not able to please God? They're not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can they be subject. They have this animosity toward God. But the spirit and the law of the spirit is completely different. It's about an influence, the power of the spirit in Christ. The results is, eight four, the righteousness requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. And the ultimate outcome is a life, the spirit of life, resurrection life. So in this fork in the road between a life driven by our natural baser instincts and a life driven by this new principle, this new law of the Spirit of Christ, which fork are you on? Has God brought you here this morning to awaken in you a yearning to go all in with Jesus Christ? To recognize that on your best days, You can't muster the strength of our weak flesh to obey at a level that would make you acceptable to God. But God in Christ offers to give you a status in his righteousness that makes you acceptable simply by believing in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's not something of no consequence you will for all of eternity ponder your lack of responsiveness to Jesus if you never get around to settling that. And God invites you to Jesus Christ this morning. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The second question that this passage asks us is this, on what have we set our minds? Look at verse 5 in particular. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who lived according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I love John Murray's definition of this set your mind notion. What's that? John Murray said is, our mindset is the absorbing objects of thought. 
the absorbing objects of intention, affection, and purpose. Ask real simply and straightforward, on what have we set our minds? And how has whatever we've set our minds upon influenced the course of our life? The decisions that we make. Once upon a time in my past, many years ago, I sat down with the colonel, and that was up to that point, the highest ranking military officer I'd ever been around. And um, um, he loved being a colonel, and he loved himself as a colonel. <laughs> and uh, um, he uh, was full of uh, brash and bravado and read me the riot act. But what, what had happened is um, they didn't have a chaplain for their uh, reservist wing that he was over. And he was trying to solve that riddle and hire a chaplain and uh, uh, a guy who was a part of it told my dad, hey, he ought to go over there. They're, they're in desperate straits. And I thought, well, but anyway, the interview, he read me the right act, told me what he wanted, told me the duties, the scope of duties, what, the expectations, and then it ended like this. I want you to know my mind's made up. And I thought, well, that's kind of a weird way to end this conversation. My mind's made up. He said, I don't have to think about this. I don't want you to talk to me about Jesus. My mind's made up. I'm finished thinking about that. Well, he had set his mind. That was a particular way he had set his mind. And I said, boy, that's not me, Eric. But you realize you can set your mind on a million non-Jesus things and seek to prosecute your life. And you know what? It leads to, it's fascinating. What does he say it leads to? It leads to death. But then we can set our lives on a course driven by the law, the life in Christ Jesus, and have the indwelling presence of Christ through his power at work in us. What happens? We come to life and peace. It is said we've never run across a more debilitating mental health day than today in America. Uh, Well, if a mindset on the flesh, indulgence, baser instincts, if a mindset on the flesh leads to death, does that have anything to do with what's going on? And if a mindset on the Spirit of God, on the presence of Christ, upon living for him and honoring him and seeking him first, if that leads to life and peace, does this culture of death that we seem to be involved in, and does this culture of anxiety and torment and mental anguish, does that have anything to do that we have set our minds on an inevitable course that has led us to where we are, apart from Christ? And then we dare say, well, Where's the beef? Why is my life like it is? And Paul says, hello. Those who set their minds on the Spirit are led by the Spirit of God to life and peace. By the way, what do you model before a watching world? Does your neighbor go to bed at night thinking, I'll tell you what, she is full of life and peace. Something different about her. Did your neighbor finish talking to you and say, man, that guy, whatever that is, I would call that life and vitality and peace 
and authenticity and integrity. Is that what he says? Or has he ever been able to distinguish between how he lives and how you live and how he thinks and how you think? Oh, sure, you go to church on Sundays and he stays in his PJs, but uh, that's different. But is that the kind of difference Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 8? On what have we set our minds in life? What is absorbing our minds? Are you on a quest to raise your net worth? Are you on a quest to really be somebody with power and influence? Oh, no, Eric. Well, what are you on a quest for? Who are you living for? If you were to buy the farm right now with me, what would you be really proud of that you'd poured your life into? Because you're getting ready to give an account with me before our Lord for what we did. Oh, the joy of embracing that internal operating system of the Spirit of Christ. Oh, the joy of experiencing life and peace and vitality and hope and union with Christ and communion with Him. Third question. How influenced are we by the indwelling Spirit of Christ? Look at 9, 10, and 11. He turns and finishes this way. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you, hear the word of the Lord. Now notice how hopeful he is about those that he's talking to. He changes from uh, the uh, third person, those, in verse 9, to the second person, you, direct address, in verses 9, 10, and 11. This is what he believes about them. One wonderful expression of the grace of God given to us is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. It was St. Augustine who said, the law is given that grace may be sought. Grace is given that the law may be fulfilled. That sentence is a stroke of genius. And it really captures the sentiment of Paul here. Under the spirit of God's influence, we can now please the Lord. And there's something that happens when we stumble upon this reality that through the Spirit of God's agency and help, this power that raised Christ from the dead at work in us, we can actually live a life that God takes pleasure in. As God looked over the balcony of heaven, as it were, all week long and looked to observe us, did he take pleasure in how we lived all this morning? saying to you, that's my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. That's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. There's no joy in life like the pleasure God takes in our responsiveness to him. You say, Eric, how do we ever get there? We get there because he did it and he made it possible in Christ and by the spirit he brings us to such a life that can bring him pleasure. That changes the calculus of what happens in any given week. 
It's not the drudgery of the same old rinse and repeat. No, it's getting out of bed for a new opportunity to give our dead level best to live in the Spirit's agency and help for this one who loved us and gave himself for us. Now that's motivation. You can push back on anxiety. You can push back on fear and join the adventure of living for him. Is that you? Is that us? Do we just talk about the Spirit or do we relish the honor and the privilege of living under his influence in these few days that we get since he's awakened in our hearts the knowledge of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, how do you want to use the Word of God in our lives this morning? I pray that the Spirit of God would convict of sin. I pray that the Spirit of God would affirm those in obedience. I pray that the Spirit of God would raise our vision up to realize I can do all things for Christ because He's with me and I can honor Him because He's at work in me through the Spirit. Father, bring us to see the pleasure you take in our responsive heart to you. And may the affirmation of your pleasure, the smile of your countenance, shape our yearnings to keep going for you day after day, month after month. We're into a new month. It's April. First, fourth of this year is already gone. We'll not have it back, but we have this today. Now, God, give us grace to live well for you. I pray in Jesus' name.